Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Come Follow Me for Teens. I'm your host, Josh Downs, and today's episode is episode 61. And we're going to be taking a look this week at 2 Nephi chapters 11 through 19 under the theme, His Name Shall Be Called the Prince of Peace. Now, really quick before we jump into things, I just want to give you a, an observation. I had a chance to go back and read some of the reviews that had been left for me, which, by the way, I am so grateful and so appreciative of each one of you that have left me a review. This is so helpful, not just to me, but to any of those that may be looking for a podcast like this and helping them be able to find it. But one of the reviews that I read was was so good, so helpful in particular in the way that it, it mentioned that, one, that they liked the podcast that uh, they thought it was great, but they also referenced that this individual thought it was a little too long, um, that it had been advertised as a little bit shorter for teens. And you know what? I agree. Um, one of the drawbacks sometimes of being a teacher is you just end up not knowing when to stop talking. That, that Sometimes you can take a principle or concept that could be taught in five minutes and somehow you can make it last 55 minutes. Um, I just, I want everyone to know that my intent is and, and was at the very beginning to keep this relatively simple and short, somewhere between the, the time of 20 to 30 minutes. We've certainly exceeded that uh, as of late. And just going to let each of you know that moving forward, I really am going to be a little more conscious of the time and try to get through each of these principles a little bit more quickly. For those that, that love the amount of content that uh, this has been providing, just know that all that content will still be there in the study and teaching guides that are part of every single episode that I do. And I hope that that's going to be okay with each of you moving forward. I, I really know how valuable everyone's time is, all of our time is, and very few of us really have a full hour to give to much of anything, let alone a, a podcast. And so I really am going to try to be cognizant of that time, and we'll we'll shoot to really get these uh, a little bit shorter, down to around the 20 to 30 minute mark moving forward. So with that being said, here's the background of this week's study. Engraving on metal plates is not easy, and space on Nephi's small plates was limited. So why would Nephi make the effort of copying so many of the writings of the prophet Isaiah into his record? Well, he did it because he wanted us to believe in Jesus Christ. My soul delighteth, he wrote, improving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. Nephi had seen what would happen to his people in future generations. He saw that, despite their great blessings, they would become prideful, contentious, and worldly. And he also saw similar problems in our day. Isaiah's writings warned against such wickedness, but they also gave Nephi hope for a glorious future, an end to wickedness, a gathering of the faithful, and a great light for the people who had walked in darkness. All this would happen because a child was born who could end all strife, the Prince of Peace. As always, just a, a great introduction to this week's study. Now, don't feel bad if you don't understand the words of Isaiah, okay? Especially you young people and all of us older people. Personally, I think the Lord inspired Nephi to write these chapters and include these chapters of Isaiah's words because he knew we most likely would get bogged down in them and eventually give up and just go back and start over and end up rereading the story of Nephi's family and their journey to the promised land again and again and again. 
I think he wants that story ingrained in us as much as possible. And what better way to get us to go back and reread it over and over and over again than by putting the wall of Isaiah chapters right after they did. Now, with that being said, this week as you study, granted you may not understand everything that you're studying, but for me really the key to reading these chapters, these kinds of chapters, is just looking for little simple nuggets of truth, little phrases, little sentences that teach something meaningful and valuable. Remember, you don't need to understand the meaning of everything to get something meaningful out of it. So that being said, the first principle I'd like to draw your attention to is found in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. The background of this particular chapter is that, again, Nephi decides to write some of the words of Isaiah here because, well, he just, he loves the words of Isaiah and the way that Isaiah bears testimony of and teaches about Christ. He points out that Isaiah saw Christ and that he had seen Christ as well and that his brother Jacob had also seen him. And in verse 4 of chapter 11, he mentions that he loves proving unto his people the truth of the reality of and the coming of Christ. And he mentions that this is the reason, in fact, that the law of Moses was given, to help all of them better see Christ from the law. But then he mentions this truth in connection with that. He says, and this is what I would have you mark in verse 5, that all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Or in other words, everything that God has given us, that God has done, or that God has created, has been done in such a way to teach us about Christ, to symbolize Christ. There's a great cross-reference verse that you can write next to verse 5 there of chapter 11, which is Moses 6.63, where God mentions this again. He says in verse 63 of Moses 6, And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above and things which are on the earth, and things which are in the earth and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. I love, love, love that statement, that thought. I'd invite you to consider, have you ever laughed at someone when they just missed seeing something that was completely obvious to you. <laughs> I remember having a family member once ask me if I'd seen their phone when they were looking for it, and it was in their hand. Uh, my father once spent a great deal of time looking for his glasses when they were on his head. <laughs> I've looked at length myself for things that were right in front of my face, but for some reason or another, I just couldn't see them. Well, in many ways, that is what is happening to us each and every day. We are literally in God's classroom. And everything, as he says himself, that he has created in it has been designed to teach us about one thing, and that is Christ. So really, one of your great challenges, one of my great challenges each and every day is to try to find Christ in the world around us, to see him in the world around us. Because the more that we see him in the world around us, the more he will be able to shape the world inside of us. We will see his promises and covenants, his grace, his justice, his power and mercy. And we'll end up seeing the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death and from sin, as Nephi points out. And I think understanding this truth is what leads him to say, 
that my soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all men must perish. He wants his people to see not just Christ, but his significance and the importance of him in, in their lives. In my seminary classes back when I was teaching, I, I used to love to come across these kinds of verses because it would give me the opportunity to just send my students outside for a few minutes with their journals and have them look for things that teach and testify of Christ in the world around us. And without fail, every time they would come back with just some amazing things that they had seen and discovered. Things like there'd always be one student that would come back and talk about the sun and just how good it feels uh, being in its light and how every living thing is dependent on it, just like how we are with Christ um, and how dark and dreary life can be without it. They'd talk about the wind and, and how, although they couldn't see it, they still knew it was there because they could feel it, just like with Christ. Or they talk about trees and, and how they, they get their strength and their, their nutrients and, and life from being rooted in the ground, just like we need to be rooted in Christ. And so many other cool lessons from all from the world around us. And if you personally haven't done this before, I would invite you to consider doing that. It's such a great exercise to do because the more that we see Christ, the more that we recognize how close He really is to us, that He really is in all things. Doing this can help strengthen our faith in Him and our understanding that, again, He is closer than we think. And one of the, the greatest connections that we can make ourselves or that we can help our young people make is to understand that the best way that we fulfill the purpose in our creation is when we also live our lives in a way where we teach and bear testimony of and point others to Christ. Being an instrument in His, his hands to, to lead others to Him is one of the greatest privileges and experiences that we can have. As someone once said, live your life in such a way that those that don't know God will want to know God because they know you. I remember President Ezra Taft Benson saying on one occasion that I testify to you that there is no greater, more thrilling, and more soul-ennobling challenge than to try to learn of Christ and walk in His steps. Our model, Jesus Christ, walked this earth as the exemplar. He is our advocate with the Father. He worked out the great atoning sacrifice so we could have a fullness of joy and be exalted in accordance with His grace and our repentance and righteousness. He did all things perfectly and commands that we be perfect even as He and His Father are perfect. What would Jesus do? Or what would He have me do? Are the paramount personal questions of this life. Walking in His way is the greatest achievement of life. And that man or woman is most truly successful whose life most closely parallels that of the Master. And again, the more that we see Him, the easier it will be to follow Him. Some questions for you to consider about that particular principle is, number one, how have you seen Christ in the world around you? Do you have any favorite symbols or metaphors for Him in the world around you? Why is it so important that we look for and find Him in things around us? What are some lessons that these symbols teach about Him? And again, how can we apply this to us in the way that we live our lives? If everything that God has created fulfills a part of its purpose when it testifies of Him, then how can we also fulfill our purpose when we testify of Christ? How does your life bear record of His life? Is your life helping to point others towards Him or away from Him? And finally, how can you better lead people to Christ through the life that you are living? 
Now for this next principle, we're going to take a look at chapter 19, verse 6. The background of, of this particular chapter and this verse is really that in the midst of talking about all the terrible things that will happen in the last days, how the mighty will be brought low, the prideful will be humbled, the wicked destroyed, we are given one of the greatest scriptures of hope that there is. And again, that's chapter 19, verse 6, which reads, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I love the placement of this verse because just in its placement, we're reminded that despite all the fear and destruction and problems and turmoil that do and will exist in the last days, that there is always hope because unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. In fact, it reminds me of the words in the Christmas nativity back in Luke chapter 2. I've always loved the words of the angel to the shepherds on the plains of Judea the night of Christ's birth when they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. For unto you. He was given to each and every one of us personally. He was born for each and every one of us personally. He was given and born for you. And then to remind us of all that this amazing gift entails, in this one verse we are given some of the most powerful and meaningful names for him. Names such as Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we can go on and talk about each of those names, and you can as well uh, with, with your classes, with your family. My personal favorite is that of the Prince of Peace, just simply because I want peace in my life. I want to feel it. I want to have it. I'm tired of being afraid, of worrying about how things are going to work out. And so I am choosing to let that go and give it all to him because, well, as his title and one of his names is, he is the Prince of Peace. In referencing the names of Christ, Elder Rasband taught this. He said, Studying the names of Christ is not reserved for apostles. Speaking to the students of BYU-Hawaii is when he gave this talk. He said, I encourage you to know him not only through his teachings, his miracles, and his parables, but to know him by his many names. And then he said, The Book of Mormon is a great resource in one study of Christ's many names. Nephi pays tribute to the Lord in the very first verse of the book. And the people of King Benjamin testified of a mighty change in their hearts because of the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent. Moroni called for each person to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written. And he said himself, I encourage you to know him not only through his teachings, his miracles, and his parables, but to know him by his many names. When we seek Jesus as these Nephites did, we receive a witness of his divinity. We desire to follow his example. We recognize his power and his mission to atone for each one of us that we may have eternal life. He said, Christ is there for each person, whether they falter or press forward. He loves us in our brightest and our darkest hours. Personally, I've never thought about the value of learning about Christ by studying his names, but I love the idea. And I know there are a lot of names that he is known by. In fact, uh, in my study and teaching guide for this week, I will be including a little printout of all the names that he is referred to by from the Book of Mormon. What a great thing it would be for each of us to read through as many of these names as we can 
and just simply consider what each one of these names teaches us about the Savior. President Ezra Taft Benson said on one occasion, I know the Lord lives. I know that he loves us. I know that apart from him, no one can succeed. But as a partner with him, no one can fail. And then he added, I know that God can make a lot more out of our lives than we can. May we all have the moral courage from this moment forward to more fully strive each day to think on Christ, learn of him, walk in his steps, and do what he would have us to do. One of the best ways that I believe we can do that is just simply by learning of the names by which he is called, which again, 2 Nephi chapter 19, verse 6 is a great place to start with some amazing names. Can we have a discussion about why one of his names is wonderful? Which again, 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 6 is a great place to start in your study of the names of Christ. Now, a couple key questions from this principle. Number one, what is your favorite name for Christ and why? Do you have one? If not, find one. And, and hold on to it as, as something special that connects you to him. Second question, why do you think there are so many different names for him? Isn't one just enough? <laughs> what is it that they all say about him together? Have you ever studied Christ by studying his names? If not, why might this be a powerful way to get to know him better? How can your name be a reflection of his name? How can you apply the Savior's instruction to let your light so shine before Him to your own name? Whose name comes to mind for you when you think of Christ? And why does that name? How does this relate to taking upon ourselves the name of Christ as the Scriptures invite us to do? And finally, which of your friends makes it easier for you to take upon you the name of Christ? For the last principle today, we're going to take a look at what I just, I guess I refer to as a, a little bit of a pattern. One of the things as you're going through and studying the scriptures, wherever you are, is to always watch out for patterns. If you see something repeated, that most often is not by coincidence. The Lord wants us to see certain things so much so that he repeats them in scripture. And there is a phrase that throughout these chapters is repeated several times. As I referenced throughout these chapters, they are filled with warnings and prophecies about how the prideful will be brought low and humbled and the wicked will be destroyed. He even gives us warning signs to look for in our own day and time, in our lives, saying things like in chapter 12, verse 8, Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. I don't know if there's a better verse that describes our day than that one. Or in chapter 15, verse 20, when he says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, and that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for, for bitter. Again, very spot on in our day and time. But then after each warning and, and prophecy of the evil and the sin that shall be prevalent in the last days, the Lord offers multiple times this statement of hope. And this is what I would have you mark. Starting in chapter 15, verse 25, he says, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He says it again in chapter 19, verse 12. For all of this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then again in verse 17. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then in verse 21, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then jumping even a little into next week's verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 4, 
The phrase one more time is repeated. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What does he want us to know by the repetition of that phrase? Is he not implying that yes, he will not excuse or overlook sinful behavior and that there will be consequences, but in spite of all of this, despite whatever it is that has happened, whatever it is that we've done, however far that we have fallen, his hand is stretched out still. I love, love, love that thought. And young people, you need to know this because I know that one of the people you will be hardest on will be yourself. But despite all of that, he is saying to you loud and clear that his hand is still stretched out to you no matter what, that he is always there just hoping and waiting for you to come back to him. His hand is always there reaching out to you, just waiting for you to take it. One of my favorite paintings is of a picture from the perspective of being underwater and you're looking up towards the surface of the water and you can vaguely make out a silhouette of Christ and there is a hand that is dipping down into the water reaching for you. I received that painting at a very difficult and painful time in my life, a time where I felt very broken, very down, very discouraged. Things had not gone the way that I wanted to. I was beating myself up, blaming myself for a lot of the things that were going on in my life. And that painting, in many ways, saved my my life, saved my faith, because it gave me hope that despite the current circumstances that I was in, the situation that I was in, no matter what I had done, He was still there reaching out for me, just waiting for me to take his hand so that he could pull me back up out of the water that I was drowning at the time in. Young people, please be more patient and forgiving of yourself. It was expected and known that you would fall, that you would make mistakes. That is a part of God's plan, and and we need to understand the fall so that we could understand the atonement and the need for it. President Benson on one occasion said that just as a man does not really desire food until he's hungry, so he does not desire the salvation of Christ until he knows why he needs Christ. No one adequately and properly knows why he needs Christ until he understands and accepts the doctrines of the fall and its effects upon all mankind. And no other book in the world explains this vital doctrine nearly as well as the book as the Book of Mormon. You and I are in desperate need of Christ because we live in a fallen world. And from the beginning of the moment we took our first breath in this world, sin began to conceive in our hearts. That's the nature of what happens in living in a fallen world. And so that sinful part of you that has grown over time it will continue to grow it's almost like a cancer and the only way that we eradicate it is by turning to and accepting christ in our life and allowing him to do his work one of the names that he is known by is the great physician and the sooner we can turn our hearts and minds and lives over to him the sooner he can do his work of eradicating sin weakness and despair uh, evil in all of its forms from our lives one of the, the things that he is also referred to as being is long-suffering. And I think that might be one of my favorite terms and maybe even names for him as well because he is so patient with us. There will be, not be any excuse left to any one of us that he didn't do enough. 
one of the phrases that's repeated over and over in Jacob chapter 5 that I can't wait to get to is when in seeing his vineyard, the Lord's vineyard starting to decay and, and rot and doing everything that he could to save it, he says over and over, what more could I have done for the trees of my vineyard? He is and will do everything that he can possibly do for you, but it's up to you to take his hand. He can't do that part for you. You have to make the choice to let him in and to take his hand. Understand he is not going to judge you for what you've done. He is full of mercy. The Savior said of himself, Bring them hither and I will heal them, for I have compassion on you. My bowels are filled with mercy. Alma testified of the same thing. He said, I say unto you that I know that Jesus Christ shall come, yea, the Son of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth. You need to understand that mercy is defined as the compassionate treatment of a person greater than what is deserved. So yeah, you may not feel that you deserve Christ's help or Christ's love or his support, but you know what? He is going to give it to you anyway because that's what mercy is. And that's what he is offering to each and every one of us. And it is made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Brigham Young taught this about the worth of souls and trying to help us understand, despite our weaknesses and sins and mistakes, how valuable we are to, to God especially. He said, The least, most inferior spirit now upon the earth is worth worlds. No matter what, we will always have worth in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf said, If we look at ourselves only through our mortal eyes, we may not see ourselves as good enough. But our Heavenly Father sees us as who we truly are and who we can become. Elder, Elder Patrick Kiernan, this is a great quote, he said, God does not now see, nor has he ever seen you as someone to be despised. Whatever has happened to you, he is not ashamed of you or disappointed in you. He loves you in a way that you have yet to discover, and you will discover it as you trust in his promises and as you learn to believe in him when he says that you are precious in his sight. And how can we conclude something like this without referencing Elder Holland's words when he said, I do not know who is in this vast audience today that may need to hear the message of forgiveness inherent in this parable. But however late you think you are, however many chances you think you've missed, however many mistakes you feel that you've made or talents you think you don't have, or however far from home and family and God you feel that you've traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. Whether you are not yet of our faith or were with us once and have not remained, there is nothing in either case that you have done that cannot be undone. There is no problem which you cannot overcome. There is no dream that in the unfolding of time and eternity cannot yet be realized. Even if you feel you are lost in the last labor of the eleventh hour, the Lord of the vineyard still stands beckoning. Come boldly to the throne of grace and fall at the feet of the Holy One of Israel. Come and feast without money and without price at the table of the Lord. That's his invitation all throughout these verses, is that despite the wicked conditions that exist in us and around us, his hand is stretched out still. Some questions for you to consider about this principle is, number one, how does it help you to know that the Savior is full of mercy? Why might someone choose not to take his hand even though it is being extended out to help? 
How might we miss him reaching out to us, maybe through other people? Do you recognize how patient and understanding the Savior truly is? Do you feel worthy of rescue? Do you know the reason he will rescue you and and is always reaching out to you has nothing to do with being worthy and everything to do with his love for you? And how is it that his love for you can motivate you to change? How can you exhibit this characteristic of patience and being long-suffering with others in your life? Who's in need of your mercy, your forgiveness, your patience and long-suffering right now? And lastly, how can you, like Christ, extend your hand, have it stretched out still to others, regardless of what they've done? Maybe offering a hand of friendship, a hand of forgiveness, a hand of understanding, a hand of patience, a hand of acceptance, and a hand of love. In effect, offering them the hand of Christ. And there you go. Three great principles from this week's study. And I think we cut down the time a little bit as well. So feel free to to leave me any comments, any feedback. I'm always taking that in. I want this to be something that is incredibly valuable and meaningful to each and every one of you. As always, please remember that the transcript, the study and teaching guide, and the Come Follow Me membership subscription, which gives you monthly access to both of those things, as well as an early release for the next week's lesson, can all be accessed from the link in the show notes as well as on my website at joshdowns.com under Come Follow Me for Teens. Uh, I can't say enough how much I appreciate all your support, and I will continue to do my best to make this a valuable resource for you, for your family, for your classes, or for anyone else that you might be sharing some of these principles with. As always, I hope you have an amazing week studying and applying the principles and truths from this week's material. Remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do, and nor will it ever, with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow Him better this week and become better as we follow Him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.